0: Thinking aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring Iranian Zionism, With me is Jason Reza Giorgiani, who is author of a number of books, including Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Lovers of Sophia, Novel Folklore, and Iranian Leviathan. Welcome, Jason. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Jeffrey. We've talked about this in previous interviews, but when the, the very phrase Iranian Zionism, I imagine, for many people will seem paradoxical. And yet the uh, Iranian people and the uh, Jews and other Semitic people have a long, long history.
1: Indeed. In the book that I've just finished writing over the past year and a half, uh, I argue that actually the Iranians were history's first Zionists.
0: That's uh, an unusual hypothesis. I've never heard it before. But I know you've got good data to back it up.
1: Yeah, and um, I think that the place that we should begin is with this curious story in the book of Esther, Mm -hmm. uh, the story about the attempted persecution and liquidation of the Jews in the Persian Empire.
0: But let's do that. The book of Esther is uh, part of the uh, Jewish canon. It's uh, really the basis of the Jewish holiday of Purim.
1: Indeed. And that holiday was, according to the book of Esther, institutionalized by the Persian Empire. Uh, so the holiday celebrates the uh, salvation of the Jews from an attempted persecution by the prime minister of Iran, who at that time was uh, Haman, the prime minister of King Xerxes. And allegedly there was a vast plot by Haman and his court officials to liquidate the Jews of the empire. Now, these are Jews who had settled in Iran for about uh, 200 years at that time, the Assyrians had attacked uh, Israel in the 700s, and they exiled a large number of Jews to uh, what became Iran, to cities like Ekbatana, or present-day Hamadan, and Shushan, or Susa. And uh, then the Babylonians subsequently yeah. attacked in the 600s.
0: So, the first exile is what we think of as the Ten Lost Tribes. That's right, and they Israel.
1: were, were quote-unquote, uh, sent to the east. Mm-hmm. And the east... Uh, in terms of Assyrian geography, is Iran. Yep. So the Iranian Jewish community actually predates the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile was the second transplantation of large uh, population of Jews to Iran. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's in that uh, Babylonian um, attack that the temple is uh, destroyed. And the Babylonians, are, I mean, the uh, Jews are settled in the city of Babylon. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, is liberated by Cyrus the Great and subsequently becomes the administrative capital of Iran. Mm-hmm. But the point is that by the time of the story of uh, Esther, you've had Jews settled in Iran for a couple of hundred years. And um, so in, in this uh, story, we're told that uh, a prominent Jew by the name of Mordecai who spent his days uh, mulling about the uh, palace grounds, uh, around the, the gardens and the main gate to the palace. He is apprised of details of a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. And he informs Xerxes, of this plot and mm-hmm. the the uh, guards who are planning to to assassinate the king are rounded up mm-hmm. and brought to justice, mm-hmm. and Xerxes makes a note of this in his private notebook. Yeah. Uh, but no particular honor or recognition is given to Mordecai at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. Now Xerxes is part of the uh, Achaemenid dynasty, the original Persian Empire.
1: Yes, he's the third great emperor of Iran. Uh, so, you know, Cyrus was the founder of, um, imperial Iran and, uh, Cyrus's daughter Otusa is the mother of Xerxes. So there's the, the bloodline connection mm-hmm. between Cyrus, the founder and Xerxes and his mother, um, Attusa, was of course the wife of Darius the Great, who is the father of Xerxes. Mm-hmm. So Xerxes makes a note of this foiled assassination plot and, um, you know, one night when he can't sleep, he is reading his notebook and he brings, he calls his court officials in and asks whether this Mordecai was ever properly compensated for having saved his life. And, uh, they, um, they tell him no, he hasn't been. And at that very moment, his prime minister Haman comes in and he intends to ask Xerxes for permission to uh, hang Mordecai from, from a gallows that he's had prepared for him as part of apparently some much larger plot against the Jewish community. Now, what Haman doesn't know is that uh, one of Xerxes' concubines is um, Mordecai's niece. So what's happened is Xerxes' wife, Queen Vashti, as, as it's uh, said in the book of Esther— Probably her name in Persian was Vahishti Vahishti, or in middle Persian Beheshti. and uh, this uh, Vahishti is refusing to appear in public with Xerxes, probably under the influence of Semitic customs that predominated in Susa. Mm. And so uh, it's decided that, the empire will be scoured for appropriate escorts for the king at royal functions. And one of these women who's brought into Xerxes' harem is Mordecai's niece, whose actual name is Hadassah, but she's given the name Esther or Ishtar uh, when she's brought into the royal harem. And um, Ishtar being also the name of a goddess. Well, not just a goddess, but the goddess of the city of Babylon. Uh, which is also interesting in that the main god of the city of Babylon is Marduk, and the name uh, uh, Mordecai sounds awfully like Marduka. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain, perhaps, esoteric reference to both Ishtar and Marduk, the main goddess and god of the city of Babylon, the administrative capital of the Persian Empire, in this text.
0: Now, I I suppose it's also useful to point out that Babylon is not... a a Persian city originally, not an Iranian city, populated by Babylonians and Sumerians, and uh, uh, they speak the Aramaic language. It's basically a Semitic city that becomes the capital of the Persian Aryan Empire.
1: Yes, it's very bizarre. I mean, the Iranians could have kept Susa as the capital of their empire, uh, the, the capital of the Median Kingdom, which is the Iranian dynasty preceding the rise of the Achaemenids, the capital of the Median Kingdom was Ekbatana, or present-day Hamadan. They could have kept that as their capital. But when Cyrus conquered Babylon, he transformed Babylon into the administrative capital of Iran, despite the fact that there was no Iranian population living in Babylon. Uh, and this is indicative, I think, of an ambition from the start mm-hmm. to... Uh, define a cos- kind of cosmopolitan character for the, the Persian Empire mm-hmm. to uh, build up Persian imperial power in a place that it was already a nexus of international commerce. Mm-hmm.
0: And I suppose it's useful to point out that this Akhamid Empire is is really you know, probably one, if not the first wor- great world empire.
1: No, it's the first. And in mm-hmm. fact, you, you know, it's the first empire in a true sense I distinguish between a kingdom and empire by thinking of an empire as an amalgamation of a variety of kingdoms, mm-hmm. which also usually means a, a kind of multi-ethnic state, yeah. uh, which the Roman Empire certainly was. But the first empire that we and which the British Empire was and so on and so forth subsequently throughout history, the first empire in that sense is the Persian Empire. Or, or Imperial Iran. You know, the Persians, again, we've, we've discussed this in previous interviews, but it's worth pointing out the Persians never called the Persian Empire that. They always referred to Iran as Iran. Mm-hmm. So, uh, at any rate, um, and in the Jewish scriptures, you have this reference whenever you want to talk about Iran to, as opposed to simply the Persians, Persia and media, mm. the Jews tend to write. Persia and media. Uh, and so anyway, there's this vignette where one night, Xerxes can't sleep, and he's he's reading his uh, notebook to try to fall asleep, and he realizes that Mordecai was never compensated. And at that very moment, Haman comes in, um, seeking permission to uh, execute Mordecai. But before he can get in a word, Xerxes asks him how a favorite of the king should be treated, how someone to whom the king is indebted should be treated. And Haman thinking that Xerxes is talking about himself uh, suggests a public parade and you know placing the crown of the king on this favorite and basically um, you know, marching him around in splendor throughout the city. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Xerxes commands um, Haman to go ahead and prepare this kind of celebration for Mordecai. Now, uh what uh Haman doesn't know is that Esther has become aware of this plot through her uncle Mordecai Esther has become aware of Haman's plot to liquidate the Jews and so she uh requests a, an audience with with uh, Xerxes which by the way is is a detail in the text that points to the fact that she was not actually a queen we call her queen Esther. Mm. But the fact that she hasn't seen Xerxes for a month before she requests his audience for him uh, emphasizes that she was a concubine in the harem. Mm. Uh, Although when he addresses her in this private meeting, he says, my queen Esther, you know, I would give you half my realm. What is it that you requested me? Mm -hmm. And she says, I'd like you to set up a a private dinner with Haman. Uh, and he doesn't know that at this dinner she's going to spring on him the fact that Haman has been plotting against her people and that actually she's a Jew and um, basically beg for him to intervene mm-hmm. to protect the Jewish people, which is in fact what happens. They have this dinner and uh, Xerxes is initially shocked and he storms out of the, the dinner tent when he hears about this plot. But then he comes back in, and when he comes back in, he sees Haman with his hands all over, I mean, sorry, uh, yeah, Haman with his hands all over Esther, imploring her, he's imploring her to, uh, basically have mercy on him, right? Mm -hmm. Because she's now revealing this plot that he has been, these machinations that he's been engaging in without proper authorization from the emperor. And so he's disgusted seeing his prime minister with his hands all over his concubine and at that point he orders Haman to be arrested. Mm-hmm. And this is uh this is where effectively he um, intervenes and uh prevents this uh plot against the Jews from being carried out and goes to the extent of actually t- taking Mordecai and giving him Haman's job as the vizier as the prime minister and uh, uh allowing uh, Mordecai to take retribution on those who were plotting against the Jews in the empire. And we're given this shocking figure in the book of Esther that 75,000 people in presumably the uh, administrative elite of imperial Iran were executed uh, as conspirators against the Jews. Um, beginning with Haman who is suspended from the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Hmm.
0: Well, that's quite a story. It's celebrated as a holiday every year by by the Jewish people. But uh, to my understanding, many scholars don't uh, acknowledge that this is an actual historical event. Well, you know, one problem
1: I've always had with that, mm-hmm. uh, and also with Iranian nationalists who call, call this into question as history, mm-hmm. is that we don't have a lot of primary Iranian sources for early Iranian history. Mm-hmm. We have lots of uh, tablets from Persepolis that record details of, of commerce and particular fe- when particular festivals were held uh, and, and things of that nature. Okay, But in terms of historical narratives, we're mostly relying on Greek narratives from Herodotus, uh, Xenophon, and other authors. Um, who were not Iranians. Mm. And the book of Esther reads more like the parts of the Old Testament that are chronicle than it does uh, a prophetic book or something involving parables.
0: Yeah, there's very little reference to God or to any prophet. Uh, it seems to really be a historical account as as you read it. Not, In fact, one wonders why it's in the canon at all, except that uh, it represents uh, Jews being saved from a potential massacre.
1: Indeed. And so I don't see why there's this double standard that Greek historical texts, such as Herodotus which also is questionably historical at many points, Mm -hmm. should be used as sources for reconstructing Achaemenid history, but a Jewish chronicle should not be used. It doesn't make sense to me. It seems seems like a double standard. Mm -hmm. It also is a double standard that there are Iranian nationalists who look at uh, the first part of the Shahnameh, the Iranian national epic, the so-called heroic or epic part of the Shahnameh, as historical, and they try to place it on a historical continuum with the, the Sassanids and the Parthians and the Achaemenids before them. Uh, and it seems to me that those texts, which were preserved for a long time by the oral tradition before Ferdosi wrote them down in the medieval epoch, are far more questionable as historical um, s- sources yep. than something like, say, the Book of Esther. So, so I don't see why we shouldn't draw on all the resources that we have to reconstruct Achaemenid uh, history.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, is there any external corroboration uh, to the Book of Ex- uh, Esther?
1: Well, I think uh, you know w- what we should go into is um, you know using this this figure of seventy five thousand as as our our lead into it.
0: Is uh, 75,000 Iranian officials yeah. executed. That's, yeah. that's a huge uh, massacre uh, of its own. Yes. So, so question you
1: have to ask immediately is why would anyone make up a story like that?
0: Yeah.
1: Why? I mean, this is not to the credit of the Jews, really, to make up a story like that. After all, the Jews in Isaiah had depicted Cyrus as their Moshiach, the only figure in the entire uh, Old Testament who is not a Jew, who is not of the Davidic bloodline, who is identified as the Moshiach or Savior of the Jews, is Cyrus the Great. And you're
0: talking about the uh, Isaiah the prophet in the book of Isaiah. That's right. As I understand it, Isaiah was uh, one of the exiled uh, Babylonians. That's right. And so you'd have to ask why anyone would
1: make up a story like this. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that this story reflects... The vast influence that the Jewish community had built up over the 200 years that they were in Iran, in what became imperial Iran. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, I think, um, you know, what is corroborative is the whole history of Jewish interactions with the Iranians up to the time of King Xerxes. Well, let's talk about that. So, I mentioned Cyrus the Great Mm -hmm. as the the Messiah of the Jewish people. Uh, you know, in Isaiah, we're told that Cyrus is the sword in God's hand and that Cyrus is going to be the redeemer, redeemer and savior of Zion. Mm-hmm. And the term Zion is specifically used. Uh, so Cyrus, it is said by God uh, through Isaiah, Cyrus is going to call for the rebuilding of the destroyed temple. And for the reestablishment of, of Israel, mm-hmm. which is exactly what he does do when he, uh, enters the city of Babylon. But Cyrus is also depicted in Isaiah as someone who is going to, uh, bring harsh retribution upon the Babylonian people for their persecution of the Jews. Mm-hmm. And this he does not do. So there are certain things that are promised of Cyrus the Messiah that are not fulfilled. So you have to ask yourself, what are the conditions under which this text was composed? Mm -hmm. Where certain of the quote-unquote prophecies of this text come to pass, and others do not. And Josephus, the Roman historian, uh, claims that Cyrus actually met with Isaiah and had the book of Isaiah uh, read to him mm-hmm. before he entered the
0: city of Babylon. In, in other words, Isaiah's prophecies regarding Cyrus uh, predated Cyrus's uh, conquering of Babylon. That's right. Mm-hmm. And
1: so Cyrus, before conquering Babylon, had conquered both Shushan, Susa, and Ekbatana, the capital of the median kingdom, mm-hmm. two cities where there were large numbers of Jews, mm-hmm. so he would have and the Jews in in Shushan and in Ekbatana had close ties to the Jews in Babylon yeah. so they Cyrus and his companions his 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 administrative elite and his fellow commanders would have already been in touch with the Jewish elite.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, an interesting thing here is that the Jewish people had been conquered, they had been exiled, they uh, no longer have their temple where many of their ritual practices uh, had to take place. So uh, there are people without a homeland, and like many other ancient peoples at this this time, one would expect that they would just vanish. There, there are no obvious reason why uh, the Jewish nation at that point would have survived at all. That's
1: right. That's very peculiar. And, and I think we have to, you know, um, ask ourselves why it is that this particular very small minority of people became so central to the world's first empire. Mm-hmm. So Cyrus seems to have met with Isaiah before entering the city of Babylon. Yeah. And another thing that we need to look at in this context is some very clear evidence from Babylonian sources that Cyrus was in communication with the priests of Marduk, the the main god of the city of Babylon. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Babylonian sources describe uh, Cyrus as the little slave, quote unquote, of Marduk, and before Cyrus even enters the city of Babylon, the first thing the Persian military does when they enter the city is they secure the temple of, of Marduk and allow for the rituals and festivities there to take place mm-hmm. as Cyrus is preparing to enter the city himself. When Cyrus enters Babylon himself, the first thing he does is go to the temple of Marduk and kneel before the great golden enthroned idol of the god and uh, submits himself to a ritual humiliation by the high priest of Marduk, where his face is slapped so hard that he's brought to tears. Then he goes out onto the terrace. This is when he he then goes out onto the terrace and delivers his famous uh, proclamation that some have characterized as the first charter of human rights in history. And it begins in the name of the god Marduk. Not in the name of Ahura Mazda or the name of any Iranian god, but in the name of the god Marduk. Mm -hmm. So we know that Cyrus was in cahoots with a priestly elite inside Babylon before entering the city.
0: Now, an- another point, I suppose, is, is to my understanding, is that this city of Babylon, the head of the Babylonian Empire at the time, uh, was conquered without any uh, battle.
1: Well, yes. I mean, that's exactly the enigma, is how is it that... The conquest of Babylon was bloodless. How did the Persian army just march into Babylon without a fight? What it means is that there were collaborators from the inside. And the Babylonian texts allow us to conclude that one set of collaborators were the priests of the Temple of Marduk, who were not happy with Nabonidus, uh, the last Babylonian king. Uh, who hadn't been properly uh, performing the the rites dedicated to Marduk. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Marduk was, in the Babylonian religion, was like the king of the gods.
1: Right. And Nabonid, uh, Nabonidus had, uh, had been neglecting the cult of Marduk. And so Cyrus clearly had gotten the priests of Marduk onto his side. Uh, But my question is this, if he's meeting with Isaiah outside the city of Babylon before he enters, is there another group of people inside of Babylon Mm -hmm. that Cyrus has entered into an agreement with? And I suspect that, yes, there was, and it was the Jews of Babylon. And so the reason why certain of the prophecies in Isaiah are fulfilled and certain others are not is that, as in any political negotiation of the kind that still takes place today, you make certain promises to a group of people whose collaboration uh, you're seeking. And, um, you know, some of them you're able to fulfill and others of them you're not.
0: Well, of, co- of course, I suppose traditionally Jewish people would take Isaiah's prophecies to be exactly that, not the result of a negotiation, but right. actually a, a prophetic vision. And I would imagine Cyrus... uh, uh Would be very pleased that that some person of religious stature would issue a prophecy that uh, he is going to uh, liberate Babylon.
1: Right. So what I'm saying uh, is going to rub both Iranian nationalists and, uh, you know, Orthodox Jews the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, I'm saying that it's not as if the people of Babylon just threw open the gates of their city because they believed that Cyrus was such a humanitarian that out of the goodness of his heart he was going to, you know, spare every one and treat everyone benevolently. No, it's because he had collaborators from inside the city. Mm. And, you know, Orthodox Jews are not going to like the fact that I'm suggesting the book of Isaiah is state propaganda. It was propaganda manufactured in order to create the image of Cyrus as the Messiah of the Jewish people so that Cyrus uh, in fulfilling his debt to the Jews who collaborate in opening the gates of the city of Babylon to his army, Cyrus would then go and reestablish the state of Israel and commission the reconstruction of the temple, which he, in fact, does.
0: In in fact, as as you've explained to me earlier, the rebuilding of of Solomon's temple to create the second temple uh, was paid for out of the Iranian treasury. It was paid for out of the Iranian treasury, and it was completed
1: under the reign of Darius, uh, not Cyrus's son, but Cyrus's s- most significant successor, the next mm-hmm. great king in the mm-hmm. line of the Achaemenids, is the one who presided over the completion of the temple. The husband
0: of uh, D-
1: Cyrus's daughter. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Cyrus's daughter, Atusa, her husband is Darius the mm-hmm. Great, who personally intervenes to make sure this project gets done. Okay, because it's, you know, like any large budget project, it's behind schedule and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And so he personally intervenes and he makes sure the best you cedar wood from Lebanon, from the Persian ports in Lebanon are brought down for the, the ramparts of the temple and so forth. And he, he ha- has the project completed. Now, what's significant about Darius in terms of the Jewish community is that Darius is credited with three major innovations to the, the economic system of humanity. Uh, one is the introduction of standardized coinage. The other is the introduction of private banking. And the third is, is the check, the creation of the check mm-hmm. as an
0: instrument of finance. So, so from a, the point of view of the development of a capitalist economy, these are huge.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So the first one, the
0: introduction of standardized
1: coinage, is a replacement for a barter economy, mm-hmm. where you have bullion, either silver or gold, uh, standing in for bartered goods and w- with a fixed rate being established mm-hmm. between a certain quantity of of what were bartered goods to a certain uh, quantity of uh, precious metals. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in fact, actually what you're doing is you're making these metals precious in a way that they weren't before because say gold was was used in crafts mm-hmm. work and the crafts were valued uh aesthetically for their or for their for their beauty or for yeah. their religious function or something yeah. like that. But to turn gold into a representation of a bar of goods that are being bartered in an economy previously uh, gives gold a value that it didn't have before in, mm. in the human psyche. And interestingly these these coins had a portrait of Darius on them. And the word uh, portrait or, or countenance in Persian to this day is shekel. So the Jewish term shekel refers to the portraits of Darius on the first standardized coinage that, were, uh, that was introduced at that time. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and the shekel is still the
1: uh, Israeli coin. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, there were two types of coins introduced by Darius. One was silver and one was gold and the silver was called shekel uh and the gold was called the daric and they both were referred to Darius daric as in Darius mm. and shekel as in the sh- the image countenance of Darius on the coin mm. so then the, the other uh major innovation of Darius is the introduction of private banking and we have the names of some of these banks um like Egebi and sons uh Morushu and sons and you know f- prior to this time the The closest thing that there were to banks were treasuries run either by temples dedicated to a particular god or goddess or royal treasuries. So now these are private banks going back, uh, 2500 years or so. Yeah. And so the question is, you know, who's running these banks in Babylon? Who's, if it's not the priests of the, the, temple of Marduk or the priests, priestesses of, uh, priests of temple of Ishtar or whatever, uh, and if it's not the royal treasury, who, who is running these private banks? I think it's the Jewish community mm-hmm. of Babylon, who, which had been well settled there and already involved in mercantile activity.
0: And, and we know from the you know, books of Moses that presumably predate the you know, Babylonian exile that uh, lending was a common practice because they had the Jubilee year. Every 50 years, debts were forgiven. Right.
1: So you have these private banks run by Jews who are establishing lines of credit mm-hmm to finance fisheries, uh, agricultural uh, enterprises, uh, wineries, um, beer companies, uh, people engaged in mercantile shipping mm-hmm. activity. And they are doing this uh, based on the manipulation of trust and expectation. Mm-hmm. So we have the beginning of a, of a credit-based finance system
0: run by Jews in Babylon. Yeah. And, now, to be clear, though, these names, Agabee and Sons and the other name, we are not necessarily Jewish names.
1: We, You know, to be honest, I don't think we know very well because yeah. the Jews of Babylon married into the Babylonian aristocracy. Yeah. So, uh, even if, if a particular bank was established by a native Babylonian or whatever, yeah. you know, we don't know what kind of family ties were there or who it might have been taken over by. I mean, by, they were or,
0: brought to Babylon in yeah. bondage.
1: Yeah, but that's also it. kind of... See, this is... And I don't want to, you know, to be careful how I put this here, but it's not as if the Jews had a terrible life in Babylon. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why when they were liberated by Cyrus, the vast majority stayed. They Mm -hmm. did not go back to this piece of desert that had been devastated Mm -hmm. uh, to engage in in, in effectively the first Zionist project in history of rebuilding Israel. They continued with their comfortable lives in Babylon.
0: Well, an important part of the story, I should think, which comes a bit later, has to do with Ezra, who uh, codified the Jewish scriptures and then came back to to be the governor of uh, Israel or Jerusalem or uh, the Judean kingdom.
1: Yes, so uh, Judaism as we know it is a post-exilic phenomenon. Judaism as we know it took shape after the Babylonian captivity, Babylonian exile was put to an end by Cyrus. Mm-hmm. There are a number of features of the Jewish religion that do not exist in ancient Israelite religion. And every single one of them has a precedent in ancient Iranian religion. So, for example, in ancient Israelite religion, there's a sense of collective guilt uh, and a sense of, uh you know, the punishment of subsequent generations for the sins of their ancestors. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Judaism as we know it, Today, there is the the idea of the judgment of an individual soul based on that person's righteousness or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. And this is an idea, this idea of personal conscience, this is an idea at the core of Zoroastrianism. Related to it, related to judgment of an individual soul, is the idea of an afterlife, which you also don't find in uh, ancient Israelite religion. I mean, there is a sense of a kind of Hades-like realm of shades that's called Shul.
0: Mm-hmm. But yeah, very similar to the Greek idea. Very
1: similar to the Greek idea of Hades. But there's no heavenly afterlife that yeah. involves a reward for one's righteousness. Mm-hmm. But that is an idea that you find in Zoroastrianism. Mm-hmm. It was an ancient Iranian religion. There's also... The conception of Satan that arises at this time, and that we first see in the book of Job, which, uh, even early theologians took to be roughly contemporary with Esther. Mm. So in the book of Job, we, we see the figure of Satan come to prominence as a, as a, uh, antagonist of God. And this mirrors the role of Ahriman in opposition to Ahura Mazda in the Zoroastrian religion. Mm. Then there's the eschatological conception of history, of, of a history unfolding through successive stages leading to an apocalyptic end of time and a final judgment of the world, uh, which again you see in, uh, in the Gothas of Zarathustra, as far back as the Gothas of Zarathustra in ancient Iran, but there's no trace of it in ancient Israelite religion. It does, however, appear in the book of Daniel. Mm. Which again, you know, the prophet Daniel is buried in Iran. The prophet Daniel, his tomb is in, in Shushan, in Susa. So, uh, you have this conception of the final judgment and, you know, closely, uh, intertwined with the idea of the final judgment is the arrival of a savior at the end of the world. Um, the term Moshiach in ancient Israelite religion simply referred to a, an Israelite king, a great king, uh, who um does service to the Jewish people. But Moshiach comes to mean, after the Iranian influence on uh, the formation of Judaism, Moshiach comes to mean this expected savior at the end of time, which is a mirroring of the Zoroastrian idea of the Mm Soshyant.
0: I guess at this point we can say this from the the records. We have evidence that uh, Xerxes authorized the Jews to execute uh, Iranian officials who had intended to uh, persecute those Jews. That's in the book of Esther.
1: Yes, and it must suggest... A huge influence that the Jews were wielding over the Iranian state. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to go back to this banking system, right, uh, a banking system that involved also the the invention of the check, uh, which, you know, I mean, is a completely bizarre idea. If you think of the barter economies of the time, that you would write somebody an IOU for tangible goods and expect that – you know, someone is not going to take advantage of that. You mm. know, uh, that's only possible in a world where uh, Darius has constructed these vast royal highways and has a pony express on these highways, so that anyone who, who tries to run off, you know, um, uh, uh, as a financial swindler, can be apprehended. In other words, you've got a, to something
0: like a stable society. Well, you have you have an
1: intercontinental administrative system supported by infrastructure that hadn't existed up to that time, like an intercontinental highway system, Mm -hmm. and and rapid transit on that highway Mm -hmm. system.
0: And you also have, going back uh, to Cyrus, the desire of the Achaemenid emperors to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem.
1: Yes. So... The Jews clearly had significant influence. Mm-hmm. And I think that what happened while Haman was prime minister is that these plans were laid in front of him for the invasion of continental Europe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Xerxes' famous campaigns against Greece that ultimately end in disaster. We're talking
0: about the Persian Wars. The now. Persian Wars.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, I've looked at the numbers involved in these campaigns. Um It was a an armed force of five million men in terms of the population of that time, which if you scale it to the contemporary population, is something like a 200 million man army and navy. In other words, a military force larger than the combined populations of some of the largest European nations. Mm -hmm. Where did the grain for these men come from? Where did their water supplies come from? Who financed a war? on this scale. I think that when these plans were put in front of Haman, who, after all, as the Prime Minister was the bean counter and head of the bureaucracy, responsible for making sure that the Royal Treasury wasn't destroyed and the state wasn't bankrupted, Haman uh came to the conclusion that there was something going on here that that, you know, I mean either he didn't understand or he didn't approve of. Mm. Uh, because you see, continental Europe was was peripheral. The great classical Greek culture really rose up after the Persian Wars. And so Haman would have wondered why Xerxes, or for that matter, his father Darius before him, who had started to plan for this invasion, were so intent on conquering the boonies at such a great expense to the state. Mm -hmm. And I I think that the answer to this uh, goes back to whatever project it was that the Iranian and Jewish elites were collaboratively involved in. A project that, um, through its integration of diverse ethnicities and multiple kingdoms into a cosmopolitan state, also required the creation of a religion based around one true God. So, as I had mentioned before the rise of these private banks, the only banks that existed were treasuries run by temples dedicated to one or another God or goddess. And so, an integrated financial system also presumes, or or rather requires, as a spiritual and ethical backbone, a different kind of religious belief, a different form of spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, this is uh, the answer to, to the riddle of what exactly was going on here with the creation of Judaism. in in the monotheistic form in which we recognize it today.
0: Because I think it's fair to say that the ancient Israeli religion wasn't strictly monotheistic. We know from the uh, scriptures that in the household of King David, uh, they had uh, what were called Ashtarot, goddesses, uh, idols, images of uh, the goddess Ashtar. Related to Ishtar or Esther. <laughs> that's right.
1: And many people have identified Zoroastrianism as mm-hmm. the first monotheistic religion. Yeah. But strictly speaking, that's not true. Although Ahura Mazda subsumes uh, all of these other deities, and Ahura Mazda demonizes various other gods. After all, Zarathustra is preaching against the Devas, the, the gods of the old Indo-Iranian pantheon, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, although that is the case, you have in Ahriman this antithesis to Ahura Mazda. Yeah. So, you know, despite what uh, latter-day Parsis who have been affected by Christian missionary activity in India and so forth, India and so forth would like to profess, Zoroastrianism is not really monotheistic. It's dualistic. Mm-hmm. And I think something interesting is going on in the Achaemenid period where the Mithraists who, you know, had a, a state religion under the Median kingdom. Be,
0: be, because the Mithraic religion predates Zoroastrian. Yes, and it was the state
1: religion of the Median kingdom mm-hmm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think these Mithraists are seeing the rise of this radically dualistic teaching yeah. of Zarathustra. And they're seeing the conversion of a certain number of the Magi to this new Iranian religion. And at the same time, you have a world empire rising up. You have the idea of one world order, okay? The, the Achaemenid peace, the Pax Achaemenica. Mm-hmm. And what really would suit that is a monotheistic religion. Mm-hmm. So, I think what happened here, and, you know, in a subsequent discussion, we can we can uh, look at evidence for this in terms of the structure of, of the kind of Mithraism that was brought into the Roman Empire, where both Ahura Mazda and Ahriman are venerated, as sort of co-equal deities mm-hmm. with Mithra as a mediator between them. Mithra, the God of oaths and contracts seen as the mediator between these two opposed forces. I think what's going on is that the Mithrists and the Achaemenid empire among the elite and the, the Magi and the Royal elite. Uh, after all, you know, Mithra was also a war God. And so the military officers who brought Darius to power and Darius himself as a military officer were devotees of Mithra. Mm-hmm. I think these Mithrists are looking for, a, a monotheistic religion they are they are trying to create uh the cult of a one true god and that they've enlisted the Jewish elite in this project that has uh financial components that affects the the infrastructure of the country but that ultimately also is a a uh,
0: A design aiming at the further evolution of human consciousness. So, to the extent that Zionism is an ideal which uh, suggests that all of humanity will be united under the worship of the one true God, that that was an ideal uh, embraced by the earliest Persian emperors. I would put it the other way around. I would say that that
1: ideal has no place in ancient Israelite religion. There's no trace of it. There's no precedent for it in ancient Israelite religion. It is an Iranian idea, which was developed in collaboration with the Jews of Babylon and mm-hmm. other Iranian cities. Mm-hmm. And so this, Zion, this uh, universal Zionist idea is as Iranian in its origin as it is Jewish. And it deeply reflects certain Iranian beliefs, which uh, to an extent are coming from Zoroastrianism, the belief in the afterlife, the belief in the, the savior at the end of the world, of a final judgment, the angelology, the idea of the seven archangels mm-hmm. and of the, the six demonic forces in the six six demons in league with Satan. These are all s- re- certain reflections of, of Zoroastrianism. But what's also going on uh, is an attempt on the part of the Mithraic elite in the Achaemenid Empire to develop a different form of universalistic, humanistic spirituality that is going to be appropriate to the world's first empire. And this project is inextricable from the concrete uh, project for the reconstruction of the state of Israel, Mm -hmm. the first Zionist project in history.
0: And and that project also, I guess one would have to say, Goes roughly hand in hand with the uh, development uh, by Ezra of the Jewish canon.
1: Yes, and let me also mention that you know this project continues beyond Xerxes mm-hmm. into the reign of, of Artaxerxes, and uh, Nehemiah in the reign of, of Artaxerxes was the cupbearer. He was the royal cupbearer, which is a very uh, high position in the Achaemenid court. Mm-hmm. And then this Nehemiah is authorized by Artaxerxes to rebuild the fortifications of the city of Jerusalem. That's terribly significant because the Achaemenid imperial system did not allow for any of the satrapies, the various provinces, to have their own fortifications. The the two major functions of the local governors were to collect taxes and to provide military forces Mm -hmm. for the imperial state. So various satrapies were not allowed to have independent military forces or their own defensive fortifications. There's one exception made to this. And those are the fortifications for Jerusalem in other words for Israel yeah. for Zion.
0: What is going on here? I mean what 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 does that tell you? And and I I could be wrong about this but my understanding is that Nehemiah the cupbearer who later built the fortifications like Ezra is regarded as a prophetic figure in in the That's Jewish right. religion. That's right.
1: That's right. So, there are these deep connections
0: between mm-hmm. the Achaemenid royal
1: court and, uh, perhaps a group of Mithraic Magi on the one hand, mm-hmm. and then the Jews of Babylon, Shushan, and, and Ekbatana on the other hand. Mm-hmm. And I think really we have to view Zionism as, uh, you know, a, a socio-political phenomenon as, as something that was forged in this collaboration between the
0: Iranian people and the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're going so far as to suggest that it's something of an ancient conspiracy. I think so, yes.
1: And that's certainly what's suggested by the Book of Esther, which Mm -hmm. is where we began. I mean, for 75,000 bureaucrats and perhaps military officers to have been executed in order to prevent the liquidation of the Jewish people there had to have been a vast conspiracy against the Jews. But the reason that I think Haman hatched that plot in the first place is because as prime minister of Iran, looking at plans for what in today's terms would be a 200 million man invasion of Europe, believed that there was some conspiracy going on under
0: his nose. Mm -hmm. In in other words, he he felt that... uh, Uh, presumably the jewish bankers were uh, uh, about to destroy the empire of which he was prime minister i believe so and and to put it in today's
1: terminology he wasn't read into the classified projects (laughs) his clearance level wasn't high enough to understand what it was that cyrus and darius were up to in the first place what project it was that Xerxes inherited
0: and that continued under Artaxerxes. I see. Well, it's a very interesting hypothesis you've come up with, Jason. And uh, you certainly have data points that that support this narrative. I think it also has some very significant contemporary implications.
1: Mm-hmm, which are... Well, you know, the uh, most uh, significant uh, enemy of the Islamic Republic of Iran is the state of Israel. I mean, there are two nations in the world uh, that the animosity of the current regime in Iran is is most uh, directed at. One is Israel and the other is the United States. And so... And particularly, the idea, the ideology of Zionism has Mm -hmm. been demonized by the leaders of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And I think that it would be fascinating if it turned out to be the case that the ideology of Zionism was created by the Iranian imperial state. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that would open up a possibility for... I think a, a cultural dialogue and a different understanding of the mutual
0: histories of the, of the Iranian and Jewish peoples. Mm-hmm. Because I suppose it's, it's fair to say that uh, starting with Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes and Artaxerxes, they had the ambition of setting up a new world order, a, you know, what for them in that era would have been a uh, government that included uh, the known world.
1: Yes. I mean, in the phrase new, world order, it should be heard the new world order. In other words, the first order that is global in scope. Mm -hmm. And the Achaemenid Empire actually ruled over more subjects than any other empire in history, including the British Empire. About 50% of the Earth's population, just under 50% of the Earth's population, were subjects of the Achaemenid Empire. And what you have to realize is that they didn't know the Mayans existed. So, From their stand, and they had very little knowledge of China, Mm -hmm. of Imperial China. The the Scythians, the uh, barbarian Iranians in the Northeast, that weren't really part of the Persian Empire, they interacted with the Chinese. But from, you know, the royal throne in Babylon, Mm -hmm. it seemed to them that they were ruling practically the entire known world. And all that was left were were those boonies in continental Europe. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think uh, those military campaigns that Xerxes initiated Uh, had the intention of bringing uh, the whole world under the dominion of the one true God. And what is the thing that Xerxes is most infamous for when he invades Greece and and, uh, conquers the city of Athens? He burns the temples of the idols to the ground. He burns the idolatrous temples of the Acropolis to the ground.
0: Which would be quite consistent with... The same man uh who
1: who has 75,000 of his own compatriots executed to protect the Jewish people burns these temples of the idols to the ground.
0: So, uh, in short, we we see here a lot of evidence for uh, collaboration between the ancient Iranian people and the ancient Jewish people going back 2,500 years. Indeed, I think we do. Mm-hmm. Well, Jason reza Georgiani once again, a fascinating, provocative uh, narrative that you've come up with. And uh, it's not just a fantasy. You've got various data points throughout history that argue very strongly uh, in favor of your hypothesis. I uh, hope that this uh, hypothesis, that
1: this uh, reinterpretation of history can play a constructive role in reshaping our world today, and particularly the most troubled region of the world today. Jason,
0: thank you very much for being with me. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for being with us.